So what's with the title, uh, which is what Dorothy was asking me, so maybe some of you are asking the same kind of question as well. You know, what exactly are you getting at with this title? Well, don't blame me for that. I got most of the title, but I was emailing this David. You will have noticed that it's three Davids this evening. It's perfect, absolutely perfect. That one, anyway. Um, and in our emailing, he came back with a question mark after it, and I thought I quite like that actually. So, uh, what's with the title? Is it just about peacemaking? Is that all we're going to talk about for the next four Sunday evenings, or is it about peacemaking done fairly? Uh, peace with justice or is it asking if peacemaking is even a just thing to do well I'm not going to answer any of those not right now but we'll work at them as we go along and see how it goes over the four evenings this is uh, what we want to look at the four different themes the sermon on the mount as the practice of transformational initiatives the Christian vocation of incarnational discipleship just peacemaking and Christian engagement with developing a shared future and I'm thinking very much more then at that stage about here and now and our responsibilities as we live in this country. Um, From next Sunday evening um, I'd like to organise an opportunity for some folks to discuss some of this, any of you to discuss some of this with me and um, if it's permissible I think what we'll do is we'll use the hall, have the heat on and we'll supply some coffee And um, it would be really useful from my point of view, apart from anything else, to have the opportunity for some kind of discussion and dialogue on these themes. I'm not going to start it this evening, but this evening, if you're interested in being part of that, please come and talk to me. If you've got an email address, I'd like to have your email address, and then I can send you some of tonight's stuff and some of next week's stuff so that you're kind of uh, up to speed and uh, equipped to engage in the discussion about some of the issues that we're going to look at. So I'd really appreciate the input of folks who are present here this evening. And if you'd like to be involved in that, you don't get paid for it, um, but I don't think it'll get you into any more trouble than you may already be in. Um, But it would be great to have your input and your wisdom and advice on these things. And this evening we're going to begin by looking at this issue of the Sermon on the Mount as the practice of transformational, transformational initiatives. And where we're going with this, I hope, will become clear as we work our way through this. Okay, here's the good news. It's only eight weeks to Christmas. In eight weeks' time, on the Sunday evening here in this church, you will be having the carol service. And that means that we're either in for lots of mince pies and nice goody-goody things as we run to Christmas, or maybe also the opportunity to do something of a more spiritual nature and celebrate the birth of Christ. An opportunity to celebrate and proclaim the wonder of the Incarnation. However, within about three months, we will have moved from birth to death We'll have moved the theme from birth to death and resurrection in a very short period of time. And half of that time will be taken up with the theme of Lent. Now, I know Irish Baptists aren't particularly into Lent, but as this church has changed and some of you have come into our midst and corrupted us, there's more talk about Lent. I know that there are people here who are into Lent, and there are even people who talk about Holy Week. Um, So half of the time between now and Easter in about three months' time, we'll move very quickly from birth to death. And I wonder to what degree, and you may or may not agree with this, which is why I want some discussion on these things next week. I wonder to what degree that has the psychological effect of limiting our reflection on the life of Jesus. I mean, the idea of the church calendar is a great thing, these major festivals of Christmas and Easter, and they have a great deal to commend them, even if neither is biblical. 
in the sense that there's no reference to either in Scripture or no mandate particularly for doing them. But we know that the reality is that between birth, death, and resurrection, there was around 33 years. And of those, three years are quite well documented. But I think they don't often feature as highly in our thinking as Christmas and Easter. Perhaps we move too quickly from birth to death. I think, too, that our understanding of the theme of incarnation can be very limited. Sometimes the term is just restricted to what we do at Christmas, celebrating the birth of Christ, the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us. Obviously, it's used a great deal in doctrinal discussions about how Jesus is both God and man and how the incarnation actually works. But too often what is neglected, I think, is that the life of Jesus and the life Jesus lived are an essential part of the incarnation. Jesus was not just born to die. He was born to live, to share our humanity, but to live it as it was intended to be lived, to redeem the way of life corrupted by sin, and then to die to redeem us from the bondage of sin and death. Peter, in 1 Peter, speaks of believers having been redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you and goes on to say of Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. I think there's a case to be made for saying that we have tended to squeeze out the life of Jesus too much in our thinking as Christians. You may or may not agree, though. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, laments in this way. He says, there is a danger of the absence of Jesus, the teacher, from our lives. I just discovered at the weekend that um, Tom Wright has published a new book. It's called How God Became King. And in an interview about the publication of the book, um, he said the following. The creeds, he's referring to the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, The creeds make a lot of affirmations, which I'm obviously happy to make. But there's a big hole in the middle because they jump straight from the birth of Jesus to his death. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. But the launching of the kingdom of God comes in between those two clauses. Indeed, the first chapter of Wright's book is called The Missing Middle, which is interesting. But let me approach this in another way. Let me ask you about the Gospels. How do you think about the Gospels? What are they? What is their purpose? Why were they written? Are they written primarily as useful background material for Christmas and Easter? Are they written primarily as important background material for the rest of the New Testament? Facts that were all set down and then expounded by Paul in his missionary endeavors and in his letters to the churches? Or are they teaching documents in their own right? How do you think about the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The New Testament, when you open your New Testament, um, it is structured just like a library, in the same kind of way in which the Old Testament is structured like a library. The books are put into sections for convenience. They're not in historical order. They're not in the chronological order in which they were written. In fact, it's very hard to be sure exactly what the chronological order might be. 
So what you have is a section of the Gospels, which cover the life and ministry of Jesus, followed by Acts, which covers the life and ministry of the apostles and the work of the Spirit and the formation of the church. And then you have Paul's letters, starting with the longest. It's all very logical. Then you have the pastoral epistles, which are the personal letters written to Timothy and to Titus, starting with the longest. And then you have the general epistles, again, starting with the longest, beginning with Hebrews. And then you have Revelation and the Apocalypse, fittingly bringing up the rear. So when you open your New Testament, what you've got is a collection of books that are conveniently structured in the form of a library. But the danger, I think, is that that very helpful and convenient way of arranging the books sometimes affects our thinking if we don't stop to think about what's going on. For example, the Gospels and Acts are very often referred to simply as the historical books. But they're actually much more than just historical books. Now, I know you can't see this terribly clearly, but I did want to get them all on. And the Gospels are the ones in red. So if you wanted to see them in chronological order, they might look something like this. As I said, it's not an exact science. No one knows for sure the date of the writings, but a lot of it is fairly well calculated by scholars on the basis of the internal information in the New Testament. And this is taken from a fairly conservative source. So this isn't by some woolly liberal trying to rubbish the Bible. And you can see immediately you look at this, whether James was first or not is, is hotly debated. Uh, some people think James is probably the first letter that was written. Some think it was probably about a decade later. But what you can see is that Paul was busy preaching and planting churches for 12 or 15 years before the Gospels were written. It's believed his ministry started sometime before A.D. 50. But it's believed that the Gospels, the first of them, Matthew and Mark, wouldn't have been written until around A.D. 60 or a little bit later. So churches are being planted all over the Mediterranean region for years before the Gospels were written. Um, Paul was writing letters to the churches, including almost certainly the book of Romans, a decade before the Gospels were written. Romans was probably written contemporaneously, around the same time as the first of the Gospels were written. And if we have an idea in our heads that the Gospels are simply the resource for Paul or Peter or James or John to work from and to explain to people, we'd be quite wrong. That's not the way it actually worked in practice. They're not the sources from which Paul went to preach and plant churches. Paul was busy proving that Jesus was the Christ from the Old Testament scriptures. Now, undoubtedly, there was other resource material that he could draw on, the stories, the witness of the apostles, and maybe even some written material. But it wasn't the Gospels as we know them. The Gospels are written as resources for these new churches that Paul and others were busy planting all around the Mediterranean region. And undoubtedly, the stories of Jesus were in circulation before Matthew and Mark, but the Gospels were written so that the new believers could hear the story of the life and ministry of the one they had come to believe in and follow for themselves. They were written so that Jewish and Gentile believers could hear Jesus teaching and preaching for themselves. Written so that they might know the facts, as Luke puts it. That they might believe that Jesus was the Son of God, as John puts it. That they might be inspired and equipped to go and make other disciples for Jesus, as Matthew puts it at the end of his gospel. So that they might see how the identity of Jesus was revealed in his ministry and his death and in his resurrection, as Mark makes terribly clear. So they were written so that new Christians could hear and see the Christ they were following. 
Which kind of takes us, I think, to the next obvious question. So when they hear the Gospels, or when they read them, if they were fortunate enough to be able to, to have a copy and to read it and to see it, what's the overriding message of Jesus that they hear proclaimed? What is it that they hear Jesus proclaiming above all else? The kingdom of God. In Matthew's gospel, it's often referred to as the kingdom of heaven, not exclusively. But it occurs 49, 50 times on the lips of Jesus in his teaching, and his parables are about it. The same kind of thing happens in Mark and Luke, not to quite the same extent. Mark isn't as big anyway. But the kingdom of God is at the heart of what Jesus comes to proclaim. And it's also very interesting to note that Paul, the great evangelist and church planter, preached the kingdom of God as well. The very last verse of the book of Acts, Acts 28, verse 31, really got me thinking about this. Um, I had never really noticed it before. Here's what it says at the end of the last chapter of the book of Acts. It's talking about Paul under house arrest. And it says that these people who he was talking and debating with, Jewish leaders and others, arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God. And from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. And as the last verse of the book of Acts says, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. I'd been a pastor for 20 odd years when I read this. I mean, I'd probably read it a couple of times at least in between. But there was this particular occasion when I read it and I thought, No, that's the wrong way round. Paul preached Christ. It's not what he said. And he taught about the kingdom of God. I mean, that's what I do. I preach Christ. And occasionally, very occasionally in 20 years of ministry, we touch on the kingdom of God. But it's not the case. This is what Paul did. He preached the kingdom of God. And we don't have very much evidence of his sermons in the book of Acts. We don't know a lot about them. But as you read them thinking about this and thinking about the theme that he preached, which is exactly the same thing that Jesus preached, it kind of changes the way you read some of the sermons that we have there, like that famous sermon that he preached in Athens. And it got me thinking about what is the kingdom of God and what is the significance of the kingdom of God and why does it matter And why are the Gospels full of it? And if the Gospels are written well into the life and formation of the early church so that people could hear this message, what exactly was it they were hearing? And what is it that I'm not preaching? Or what is it that I'm not expressing in maybe the same way in which the Gospels are or the New Testament is? So the kingdom of God. If somebody said to you, explain to me the kingdom of God, what would you say? I remember being asked to write an article about it many years ago. And I started the article by simply saying, describing the kingdom of, the God is, kingdom of God is like trying to grasp the soap in the bath. Now, a lot of you are an awful lot younger than me, so you probably have a shower every morning, uh, at least I hope you do. And you probably have your shower gel hung up so that you don't lose it, you know, and, you, and all that. But if you were traditional and used to having a bath, 
and you've ever done that and you've had a bar of soap as opposed to some smelly potion, um, you'll know what it's like to try and grab the soap in the bath. It's exceedingly difficult. And sometimes getting your head around or explaining the kingdom of God can feel like trying to grab the soap in the bath. Just when you get it, it slips down around your toes somewhere. So, is the kingdom of God about the future? Is it something to do with the future? After all, we pray the prayer, uh, the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. There's a whole school of theology, which I was nurtured in as a child in the church I was brought up in, which saw the kingdom of God as something in the future. It was not something that was achieved or that happened in Jesus' lifetime. It was preached about, but it was rejected by the Jewish peoples. And then we have the church, and someday we will have the kingdom. It's a future thing. It's not something that we need to actually, I'm not saying that we don't need to be worried about it, but it's not something that's relevant, particularly for now. Is the kingdom of God the church? Is it one and the same thing? Some people might suggest that actually what you have when you talk about the kingdom of God is the church, that these two terms are synonymous. But that doesn't seem to satisfy the evidence of the New Testament, not least when you think about what Jesus says to Nicodemus. And is it here? Has it come? We just don't see it. But we need to wake up and start making it a reality in our world. Or is it actually something more like a social concept or a spiritual ideal, a vision of how we should work to order the world, a kind of social action agenda? Is it a political statement for its own time, God coming to rescue his people from oppression, a field concept? Was it a vision, a means of inspiring people to live better, to be at peace with God? How would you describe the kingdom of God? How would you explain? What was Jesus talking about? When he talks about the kingdom of God, when he starts his ministry and says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, I think most Bible scholars would agree that the kingdom of God is really about the rule of God. It's identifying uh, God's rule. It's not about a place. It's not simply about the future. It's about the reign of God or the royal rule of God. And I think it's helpful to think of Jesus as the teacher, the model, and the ambassador of that rule, because he proclaims it. He proclaims that in him and in his coming, it has come amongst us. He proclaims that it is possible to enter under this rule of God. And his coming changes everything. His life, death, and resurrection declare that God is king and God rules and has stamped his kingly rule firmly through the person of Christ on us and on the earth. Jesus comes declaring that God is at work, making his rule known through his life and ministry, through the people he's calling to follow as disciples, and through the victorious death and resurrection of Jesus. And while God's rule rightfully extends over all people, all places, and all things, it is often not recognized or it's rejected. But Jesus proclaims and demonstrates it, and he calls people to follow him in living under God's authority, God's rule, and commissions them to go proclaiming that rule and extending that rule. In another part of the um, interview I mentioned earlier with Tom Wright about his book, How God Became King, he says, It's important to read the Gospels for all their worth and not to hear them as a string of isolated stories about interesting things that Jesus did, but as a very sharp and firm statement that this, to everyone's surprise, is how the living God reclaimed 
his sovereignty in the world. Well, let's hear one of those Gospels tell something of that story and lead us into the Sermon on the Mount and those transformational initiatives. I want to read a few verses from Matthew's Gospel. And if you're using the Bibles that are in the pews, you'll find Matthew chapter 3 on, on page 967. And we want to read just a selection of these and then some of um, Matthew chapter 5 as well in a moment or two. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And then over in chapter 4, chapter 4 begins with the temptations of Jesus. And then immediately after that section, in verse 12 of chapter 4, it says this. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then if you jump on up to verse 23, after the calling of the disciples, it tells us in verse 23 that Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among all the people. And what follows immediately after that takes us into Matthew chapter 5, and we come to the passage that's known as the Sermon on the Mount, which begins with the Beatitudes. So let me ask you another question. The words bless or blessed seem to be fairly nebulous terms in English, even when you say them with a really spiritual tone. Bless. But what does bless mean? What do you think of when you use the term bless or blessing if you use it in your prayers what do you mean by it what are you asking God to do it's wonderful to hear a child pray and say God bless mommy God bless daddy God bless great aunt Bertha and help her shave off her moustache before she kisses me again but we're used to we're used to children using that kind of language, but as adults we use it as well, a lot. But what do we mean by it? What are we asking God to do? It's a very commonly used term, but a term that very often has no real content. But in biblical terms, it's a very important concept, particularly in ancient societies. You'll find it used in the Old Testament, and even in the story of Moses as it develops near the end of the life of Moses, it becomes an important issue. This issue of blessing. And to receive a blessing, particularly in Old Testament terms, was to inherit the favor, the respect, or the success of an ancestor. Something was being passed on. Something was being given. It was not just a vague hope, a nebulous hope that was being expressed. And blessing, as used in the Beatitudes, is, what, is used in that kind of way. It has the idea of knowing God's favor, knowing the smile of God's approval. The Good News Bible famously translated the term as happy, 
happy are those who, but that doesn't really do it justice. It's not primarily about the experience or the feeling of the recipient. Jesus isn't just talking about how you will feel if you are these things. It's about what is bestowed on you. It's about how you are seen by God, how you are viewed by God. So some translated, God's approval rests upon those. So I don't know what your mental picture of the Sermon on the Mount is, but mine has changed a lot over the years. And now I think of the Sermon on the Mount and, and the context of, of however this, was, this, this occurred. As Jesus kind of gathering the disciples around him, he's been preaching about the kingdom. We've got a snapshot of that up to this point. And he's gathering them around and he's saying to them, okay, this is the way it works when God rules. This is the way things are ordered in God's economy. This is how it works when you live under God's rule. So here goes. And what he says is this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it's as if Jesus is saying, in the world in which you live, the poor in spirit inherit very little but disdain. Those who mourn very often have very little to comfort them. The meek, in the way in which society is generally ordered, whether it's the first century or the 21st century, aren't the winners. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are few and far between. And the merciful and the pure in heart are sometimes despised. Peacemakers are sometimes seen as naive. And those who are persecuted for doing right are persecuted for doing right. But in God's economy, as far as God is concerned, all of this is reversed. God's favor rests upon the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. God's favor rests upon those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It rests upon the meek because they will inherit the earth. It rests upon those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they will be filled. It rests upon the merciful, because they will be shown mercy. It rests upon the poor in heart, for they will see God. It rests upon the peacemakers, because they will be called sons of God. And it rests upon the persecuted, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, As you go on through the Sermon on the Mount, what is happening really is that Jesus is taking things further. And he says to them, now, let me explain how this poverty of spirit, this meekness, this hungering for righteousness, this being peacemakers, works in practice. Because this is not just idealism. This is not just being airy-fairy. And in what follows, we have Jesus being very specific and very practical. And very often we hear this kind of twofold pattern in what Jesus is saying. You have heard, but I say. 
And it, it, it comes fairly quickly in the passages that follow. In uh, chapter 5, verses 21 to 22, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, but I tell you, anyone who is angry. Verse 27 and 28, you have heard that it was said, don't commit adultery, but I say unto you. 31, 32, it has been said, but I tell you, and so it goes on. And very often that's how we read it, that Jesus is saying in God's rule and under God's rule, things are reversed a bit. But it's not just a twofold pattern. It is actually a threefold pattern that Jesus gives us in virtually every instance. You have heard, I say, go and do. And sometimes that's the bit we miss when we're reading the Sermon on the Mount. Just look at one example of this here. You have heard, verse 21, that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the fire of hell. So, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and now remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And the whole way through the Sermon on the Mount, you have this threefold thing happening. You have heard, I say, go. It's not just about ideas. It's not just about principles. It's about practice. It's about taking initiatives that will transform situations. And the Sermon on the Mount seems to be largely about this. It seems to be about the disciples not only understanding what is approved under God's rule, but under God's rule, knowing what to do to change the circumstances and to change the way the world is ordered, maybe just their private world, maybe their family world, or maybe more widely. So what Glenn Stassen and a few others whose work we'll use later on have been arguing is that this is the pattern that sets the tone for the Sermon on the Mount. And what the gospel writers are giving us is not just historical information and background material. They're giving us a glimpse of the master laying out the terms of living under the rule of God, living as citizens of his kingdom, whether you live in Jerusalem or Corinth or Rome or Belfast. The gospel writers are spelling out what living under the rule of God looks like in practice. And that's what Paul had been preaching. And that's why Paul does what he does near the end of the book of Romans, particularly from chapter 12. Someone described it this way. What you've got are three different things happening in the Sermon on the Mount. You have Jesus restating the traditional piety or the traditional way of seeing things. You have heard it said. And then when he says that I say to you, what he's doing is he's, he's opening, taking the lid off the way life really is. And he's talking about the kind of vicious cycles that we get ourselves into. But I say to you, you know, if someone is angry, the whole thing just gets worse. And then he makes this transformation initiative statement. Go do something different. And it works again in this one. No one can serve two masters. You'll hate one, you'll love the other. You can't serve God and money. So what do you do about it? Well, you don't be anxious about possession. Seek first God's reign and justice. Seek first the kingdom of God. Living under God's rule works like this. You take the initiative to change situations in keeping with those things of which God approves. It's not just about having nice ideas, and it's not just about having nice thoughts. It's about being active, as Jesus was, in many different kinds of situations. Living under God's rule works like this. 
taking transforming initiatives, as Jesus did, which change circumstances and indicate and are the practices that indicate that we live under God's rule and not the way things are in our society. And the key to the Sermon on the Mount is the practice of following Jesus. Um, Stassen put it this way in, in one of his books. He says, Christians in the first few centuries saw the Sermon on the Mount as the central statement of Christian faith and life. No scripture was more quoted and referenced by Christian theologians in the period before the Nicene Council in the fourth century. The Sermon on the Mount is not about human striving towards high ideals, but about God's transforming initiative to deliver us from the vicious cycles in which we get stuck. And I think thinking of the kingdom of God um, in this way, the rule of God, helps join up all the different kinds of references to the kingdom in the Gospels. <clears throat> you can't see the kingdom without being born again. John 3, 3 to 5 tells us that. You need to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, as Jesus says in his own preaching. The kingdom is made real among us by Jesus. The rule of God is made real among us by Jesus. The rule of God, when it's put into practice, is like a mustard seed. It's something that's small, maybe a small step, a small thing, but it begins to grow. It begins to influence. It can be like leaven in a loaf. It can begin to make a difference. It's like treasure hidden in a field. Because when people realize just how radical this is and how transforming this is, they want it and they will want to give for it. The greatest in the kingdom is the one who is willing to humble themselves like a little child. And we pray for it to come in all its fullness. And wherever you see references to the kingdom of God throughout the Gospels, thinking of it in terms of the rule of God and living under the rule of God and life under the, the rule of God begins to make a great deal of sense. And it also helps us to get what the Sermon on the Mount is about. Because the Sermon on the Mount gives us a clear sense of the way things work under God's rule and how living under God's rule works in practice. The practice of transformation, transformative initiatives. Actively working to different rules, demonstrating in practice God's values, living out the values of God's kingdom and making a difference in our world as we do so. And that in turn has a lot to say about how we order ourselves and our life together in the church as well as in wider society. And that's the next part of the journey that we want to think about next week. But we've only eight weeks to Christmas. And very quickly, we'll be celebrating the birth of Jesus. But will we move too quickly from the birth of Jesus to the death and leave out the bit in the middle? Will we hear what it is that he has to say, which is echoed throughout the rest of the New Testament about the kingdom of God? And when we take time to chew on this and think about this and try and get our heads around this, what does it mean to speak of the kingdom of God, to live as citizens of the kingdom of God, to be part of the kingdom of God, to pray that it might come in all its fullness? Well, that's what we want to explore in the next week as we look at this together.